Blog Talk Radio. We're live. We're live with Facebook. We're live with the Vibe Radio Network. And good evening, everybody. We're live with alcohol. We're always live with alcohol. Yeah, but it's dark and stormy night. It is dark and stormy night. Because it's, well, it never did get dark and stormy here. It it went just north of us. Oh, well. We got our dark and stormy. We got our dark and stormy. Cheers. Cheers, everybody. And the girls are around somewhere. <laughs> yeah, they may or may not make an appearance tonight. They're they're doing cat they're things. Cat. They're doing cat things. They're not not quite the kittens that they used to be. So, yes, cats are into her. But yeah, so thanks everybody for joining us tonight. Um, but yeah, this is uh, it's April. It is April. It's the middle of April. Yeah, middle of April. I don't know where the time's going. <laughs> it's all good. But, yeah, mid-April, we are uh, – the, the tour business is um, cranking right along, and we're – We actually have an announcement tonight. Yeah, so a uh, big announcement right out of the gate. Uh, we are finally, 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 finally bringing back our Haunted Capitol Hill tour next month. So it has been on hiatus for over a year, as there have been all kinds of uh, – Restrictions and construction and all sorts of fun things that did not make it possible to get up on the Capitol grounds. Not fun. But they finally have eased some of their restrictions. There's still construction out there, but we can work with that. Yes. So, yeah, we are very excited to be able to offer that tour again. That is definitely the big news of the, yep. of the week for us. We just determined that, and our May schedule is now live online. So you can go book not only with Haunted Capitol Hill, but you can book any of our tours. But, yeah, for, for next month, we're going to be operating again Thursdays, Fridays, and Saturdays. And uh, the monthly special is going to be the Haunted Capitol Hill Tour. Uh, it is going to be operating uh, every Thursday night, and it is our, we're calling it our soft opening special, soft reopening special, if you will. Yeah, uh, knock off the rest. It's been a year since we've done it. Yeah, summer. but it's, uh, tickets are only going to be $12 each. Yep. So that's a, that's a discount, big, big discount off adult tickets, even a little bit of a discount off kids' tickets. General admission, $12 across the board. So if you want to come on out and join us on a Thursday night, yeah. you can come join us on our Haunted Capitol Hill as we bring that back. Yeah. But that is not the main thing that we're here to talk about tonight. No, we're going to talk about witches, and I'm all witched out. Yes. So. Yep, we are not, and not just, well, I guess you could say deciding witches. I mean, it's American witches. American witches. Yeah. There's a lot out there, and so we, we focus on American witches. We did not bring in any films. No, uh, that no. Salem's going to be a whole other its own night. Yes, we are saving Salem for Salem. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So, yeah, the Salem witch trials will be something in and of themselves. So I'm sure it'll be the cornerstone of our Salem episode, if you will. Probably. But there's plenty of other witches here in the Americas to chat about, and so we are going to go ahead and bring up some of them tonight. Yes. Yeah. But we see. Good evening, everybody. Um, graduating to cathood means even more mischief. Yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Although, that Lulu looks like she's camped out on the bed. Yep. And I don't Lulu know where was you, over there. You know, might be causing trouble somewhere. Yes, mischief. We're, we're waiting for her to start attacking the angles because that's her favorite game right now. Yep. <laughs> Particularly while we're live, live on the internet. Yes. But so if yeah. I randomly scream. My ankle's just been attacked. <laughs> oh, right. So, anyway, yeah, we'll go ahead. We will dive into tonight's story. So, uh, well, before we really dive into the story, a little, a little bit of history, a little bit of background. Witchcraft prosecutions began back in medieval Europe, of course. Um, they were based on superstitions and beliefs in the dark arts. Weather, plagues, famines, illness, and death came with no warning and little explanation. Evil spirits lurked in dark, wild places, waiting to pounce on anyone who strayed too far from civilization. (laughs) Superstition served as the only plausible explanation for the causes of unexpected death and disaster. Fear was a guiding principle, which in times of crisis could escalate to hysteria. Many accepted its fact that the devil was the root of all evil, working tirelessly to recruit followers to spread mayhem. On the continent, witchcraft prosecutions became the stuff of horror films. In 1486, a group of monks produced Malleus 
Malficarium, <laughs> Malficarium, which is which translates to Hammer of the Witches. Nothing foreboding about that at all. And this offered a guide to identify and punish practitioners of black magic. Suspects were arrested and cruelly tortured uh, into coerced confessions, and witchcraft was a form of heresy, one of the highest crimes in medieval Europe, which drew the harshest sanction, burning at the stake. Now, in the Americas, early colonists arrived in America with the same superstitions as their European brethren. They also endured breakdowns in society and civil authority, and a few small-scale witch scares cropped up in New England. However, witch hunting never really took hold here in Virginia. Some speculate that the economic nature of the colony prevented a turn to hysteria. Virginians were a little less zealous and too focused on growing tobacco, fighting the natives, and trying to establish a society to waste time and effort on extraneous matters. We had better things to do. Long story short, yeah. <laughs> Too long, didn't read. Yep. Virginians were more uh, were more religious than is generally acknowledged, but they were not Puritans, which does make a difference. The worst witch hunt in Britain took place at the height of Puritan influence, and the Puritans in New England had their own witch panics and overly aggressive pro- prosecutions, particularly in Connecticut in 1662 and, of course, in Salem in 1692. Few witch prosecutions appear in Virginia County and general court records. In fact, defamation lawsuits brought by women claiming they were slandered by neighbors' false accusations of witchcraft were far more common. For reasons unknown, many of these cases arose in the lower Norfolk region south of the James River. They became so frequent, the county court issued a judicial order to quash groundless charges. And, yeah, I, I, I know, I'm, Okay. Yeah. Sorry. I had made edits to those first two paragraphs that apparently didn't get saved, so hopefully the rest of the document's fine. Okay. <laughs> Guess I should have double-checked it. Um, and yes, Patrick, the Puritans suck for many reasons. Yeah. Oh, well. <laughs> oh and, and yeah, before I forget, Patrick, thank you very much. You uh, you actually sent us a little... Uh, a little little gift before we research. before we kick things off tonight for our research. Um, so yeah, if you enjoy the stories as we go through this evening, uh, we do go ahead and we do uh, spend a lot of time and well, money um, picking up research materials and doing all sorts of kind of research and whatnot. And uh, if you want to give us a little, you know, you know, throw out a little something for us to help us with our continued research expenses down the line, uh, we have Venmo. So you can shoot us a Venmo uh, at Haunt of Dash Richmond. So if you want to do that, that is awesome. I'll also drop it in the chat here. We'd greatly appreciate it. Yes. If you don't, we just appreciate you tuning in as well. So thank you. Yes. So while I was going through the research, there were quite a few cases, about a dozen here in the Tidewater area in Virginia, um, over a couple of different decades. And that's um, about all we had here. And again, most of them were def- defamation uh, and land disputes, that sort of thing. There was one gentleman included in this, but the one we're going to talk about is Grace Sherwood, the Witch of Clingo. Uh, so she's the most famous of Virginia's witches, and you may not um, have heard about her, but those of you who live in the Tidewater area are very familiar with uh, the Witch Duck Road and those types of things. They're all named after Grace. Uh, now, Grace may or may not have doled out curses on her neighbors, so after what she went through, you could probably believe she might have done a one, two. Um, she was born in Princess Anne County in the town of Congo. Sherwood was non-traditional for a woman in the time. She was strikingly beautiful. She was also a healer and an herbalist. She was also a midwife and wore men's trousers when planting the crop. The first case against her began in 1698 when Richard Capps began spreading rumors that she was a witch. Now, Sherwood and her husband sued Capps for slander, but their case was dismissed. Six months later, a local constable, John Gilsburn, accused Sherwood of bewitching his pigs to death and destroying his cotton crop. At the same time, Elizabeth Barnes, another neighbor, accused Sherwood of coming to her in the night and riding her before escaping through the keyhole or crack of a door like a black cat. This time, when the Sherwoods sued for slander, the defendants won, but the Sherwoods had to pay the court costs. Finally, in 1706, after several other run-ins with neighbors and the law, Sherwood was brought up on formal charges due to accusations by Luke and Elizabeth Hill. 
She was searched for strange markings that would confirm her status as a witch, but when none were found, the case went to a higher court. In July of 1706, she was ordered uh, ordered to a trial by water or ducking, and when she was brought uh, from her cell, the crowd chanted, duck the witch, duck the witch. Today, roads, lakes, and neighborhoods where the trial took place bear the name Witch Duck. Sherwood survived the trial, thus proving she was a witch. She was imprisoned for eight years before being released, and she returned home and led a quiet life until her death in 1740, at the age of 80 years old. So, quite a long-lived woman. Her story gained notoriety with the publication of a children's book called The Witch of Congo in 1973, and in 2006, she was exonerated by then-Governor Tim Kaine on the 300-year anniversary of her trial. There are many rumors about how Grace's body was buried, including being close to the chimney, so that her spirit could rise and join her master, the devil. It is believed that wholly false by the Staffordsbury Plantation, where this is actually supposed to take place. Uh, and, of course, that is where Grace's house once stood. Now, Grace is thought to have been buried under a tree that still stands on the property at Fairy Plantation House. It's considered to be Virginia's most haunted building and in what is now the Witch Dump neighborhood. While you can uh, go go and visit the house today, uh, it would be wise to go before the sun goes down. Many who live in that neighborhood report that on a clear night, you can see the shape of a woman with long, wet hair walking the banks of the river, forever reliving the injustices that were all too present in her life. Now, local author Denny Nord adds that every year on the anniversary of Grace's trial, people reportedly report it being a moving light. They believe it is to be her spirit over the place where she was actually thrown into the water in Witch Duck Bay. Another plantation we need to get to at some point. Because we just haven't made it down there yet. We're good. Very good. That was a lot of typing. It was. I was playing catch-up because I started talking, ah. and I'm, now I'm really curious what happened to my script. Oh, well, whatever. It doesn't matter. We've got a good script here anyways. It's just it might be all bad, completely unedited on my part. No pressure. None whatsoever. <laughs> but, yeah, it is funny. Uh, which duck, duck. road? Not dunk. Not dunk. Duck. duck. It was a ducking. A ducking. A ducking. Not a dunking. Ducking autocorrect. <laughs> yeah, I went there. Now, as uh, Glenn did mention in the comments here just a couple of minutes ago, um, she he lives just on the road about half an hour from the site of the infamous of Mall Dyer. And that's our actual area next door. Yep. So this is, uh, this is back up in Maryland. Just outside of Washington, D.C. is the small historic town of Leonardtown, Maryland. Founded in 1660 as Seymour Town, it was an important in the colonial days and would be occupied and would be occupied and serve as a naval union naval base during the American Civil War. Nowadays the town is mostly known for its quaint historic buildings, delicious seafood, and as the county seat of St. Mary's County, Maryland. Yet, like met with many new old New England towns, legends and superstitions are abundant here. And one of the most infamous is the story of a sinister witch who is thought to have been the inspiration for the horror film, The Blair Witch Project. Back in the late 17th century, the quiet town was still part sparsely populated and considered a fairly tiny settlement. Everyone knew everyone here, and it was a tight-knit community. As with any community, there were the ones that were deemed to be a little eccentric, and one of these was supposedly an elderly woman by the name of Mal Dyer. The woman was already a bit of a curiosity as she was quite reclusive, living out in a hut along a creek on the outskirts of town with her enormous white dog. She would only ever be seen when she went in to get supplies or beg for alms or when she went about foraging for herbs in the dim woods. According to the tales, she was known for her, her incredible height as she was said to tower over the other town. It was also rumored that her shopping list often included various herbs and strange ingredients that no one was, could figure out what the use was for. Adding fuel to the rumor mill was the fact that no one was sure where she even came from. Stories ranged from her being a noblewoman in hiding to a fugitive who had killed her husband. It wasn't long before the quiet whispers about Mal Dyer's 
a peculiar lifestyle started building into a more forceful of accusations of witchcraft. Now, despite these allegations, the townspeople mostly left her alone, more out of fear than anything else. But one particularly brutal and bitter winter in 1697 would change this. The winter was uncommonly harsh and leaving in its path a deep suffering amongst the populace. But it was soon noticed that Mal Dyer still made her runs into town and seems to be unnaturally well-fed, healthy, and none the worse for wear while everyone else was starving and dying. Combined with the rumors of witchcraft already orbiting her, in the face of all this, it was soon decided that it not only was Dyer a witch, but that she had brought this blight down upon the town as punishment for some slight. In response, the townsfolk decided to do something about this perceived evil that was plaguing them. A mob gathered, and fueled by anger and superstition, they made their way into the woods toward Dyer's little hut out by the creek. Once there, they did not even bother to confront the old woman, simply barring the door and using their torches to light her home on fire to leave it to burn to the ground. But Dyer somehow managed to escape the blaze. She then ran off into the cold winter night where, according to the tale, she froze to death while clinging to a large stone. The villagers would find her several days later upon that boulder, one frozen arm outstretched towards the sky, and it was said that her hand had left a print etched into the rock itself, seen as a bad portent of things to come, and indeed it was thought that the dying witch had cursed them and was planning to come back for vengeance. Indeed, it is after Dyer's death that the real legend would start. After the death of Maul Dyer, there were soon numerous tales of hauntings throughout the area. Maul's apparition was said to lurk about her charred cabin, and there was a ghostly white dog that joined her. Vegetation was said to refuse to grow near the cabin, and it was claimed that lightning would strike the ruins very often. Indeed, it was said that many crops in the area were strangely withered, the fields barren, and this was, of course, blamed on the curse of the witch. The tale also says that everyone who had a hand in Dyer's death met with great misfortune and freak accidents, all eventually joining her in the grave. Other than that cabin, many places around the area were soon said to be tainted and haunted by the witch, with strange phenomena continuing on into the present day. Of course, there is that boulder now called Dyer's Rock, which still supposedly holds her handprint to this day and it was and still is said to cause all manner of physical ailments for those who get near it, such as dizziness, dizziness, nausea, nosebleeds, and headaches. This rock has become an object of historic importance, being moved to the old jail museum in Leonardtown in 1972, and only two months ago it was relocated to a more fitting home with the St. Mary's County Historical Society at the Tudor Hall building. There is also the haunted Maldire Road, which is thought to be where the witch's hut was stood. Along this road have been reported shadow figures, strange apparitions, inexplicable storms that come from nowhere, unexplained car accidents, and even the ghost of Dyer herself, who seems to especially hate men. Well, probably a mob of men that burned her hut down. Yeah, I wouldn't be pleased with them either. Yeah. The legend of Maldire has become one of Maryland's most well-known pieces of lore, but it is uncertain just how much of it is based in reality and how much is pure myth. Since records of the era were patchy and incomplete, historians have had a hard time confirming if she ever really did exist, although it is known that there were several dyers in the region at the time. Not helping matters is that most of the stories of the witch were passed down orally, with the first real written account not coming out until the 19th century, when author Joseph F. Morgan collected the accounts and put them to paper. There are no real concrete or verifiable historical records from Aldair, and so she remains as much a specter as ever. But a fun story. Fun story. And you can go visit her rock there in St. Mary's County at the Historical Society. Very good story. All right, so we're going to jump out west to Mississippi. Do you have any questions before I start? Uh, uh, Oops. trying to watch it. Not along. Ah, so Patrick's seen the, uh, the statue for 
for Grace Sherwood, back to the first story, and uh, which ducks, roads, and lanes all over the Virginia Beach yeah. area. And, ah, Ellison's mom lives just down the road from Witch Duck. Oh, cool. I knew she lived down that way, but I didn't know that. No other real questions. Okay, cool. But, yeah, happy to share the tale of Mall Dyer. Yes. Yeah. All right, so we're going to jump over to the Witch of Yazoo City, Mississippi. Now, it's not unusual to see chains marking the perimeter of the burial plot. Sometimes the chains are modest in appearance or embellished with metal tassels. Either way, the standard chain is constructed so that the size of the link suits the wire diameter. But at Glenwood Cemetery in Yazoo City, Mississippi, there's a 19th century grave start site with the chains that challenge the link size wire diameter rule. The chain links are long with very narrow wire diameter. This is a country. You're <laughs> uh, welcome. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> they are so enormous that only three links are needed to span each side of the plot. The odd-looking gravesite chain has spawned which lore about the person whose gravesite it encloses. Legend has it that if the chains are broken, the city of of Yazoo will be burned. As the tale goes, sometime in the mid-1880s, a woman who lived near the Yazoo River entrapped a number of men as they fished along the riverbank. Unlike the catch and release of some recreational fishermen, the old woman would toy with the men, eventually torturing them to death. According to the Occult Museum website, her evil misdeeds came to light when two bodies were discovered dangling from the ceiling of her home. During her attempt to flee the local law authorities, she slipped and fell into quicksand. Before she expired, she cursed the city and vowed that in 20 years she would return to burn it to the ground. The old woman's words left everyone feeling a bit unnerved, and as a precaution, the unusual wrought iron chain was placed around her grave. For added protection, they incorporated the sacred number three into the Captain James design, and the number three is associated with the Christian trinity and used to protect as protection from evil. In addition to the iron, uh, which was long since believed to be impenetrable by human spirits and evil entities. However, neither used, uh, neither of the use of iron or the sacred number three could fend off our witch's curse. On May 25th of 1904, the city of Yazi was on fire, and many people believed it was the result of the old woman's curse. The fire destroyed over 300 homes and buildings and it was noted that the city was experiencing unusually high winds for that time of year. And witnesses claimed that these flames seemed to leap towards the sky as though driven by a demonic force. Ever since the fire devoured the city, the tale of the witch and her curse has been told from one generation to the next to warn everyone of her wrath. However, being such a subject of a popular tale, the witch's gravesite attracts unwelcome attention. The protective chains have been reportedly broken many times since the fire of 1904. Locals fear that whoever tampers with them are gambling with the city's fate. On the other hand, some versions of the lore insist that chains must be completely removed from the witch's grave before she can return from the dead and seek further vengeance against the city. The witch of Yazoo's uh, true identity is unknown due to missing burial records, and no full name is expressed on the headstone. The website Find a Grave insists the story is about, about a witch is fictitious. No one really knows who she is, and uh, there was no records of the fishermen being murdered in 1884. According to several sources, the original grave marker for the witch only has the initials T-A carved into it. The marker was eventually replaced with a headstone inscribed with a brief explanation of the legend, but the replacement stone toppled over and split in half, and it's no longer... Um, not long after it was placed at the grave site. No one can say if it was a result of vandalism or otherwise. No matter the markers of, that rest on her grave or whether the troublemakers are willing to tempt fate by disturbing her resting place, the Witch of the Yazoo keeps the community living in fear of the flame. You know, I understand and get that find a grave would be kind of compelled to make notes specifically kind of dispel that kind of thing. But there's so much that's weird about the grave. Why is the grave like that in the first place if there is no veracity whatsoever to the past? Yeah. I mean, what There has um, to be a grain of truth somewhere. Yeah. So, yeah. Where, just which grain? <laughs> which, yeah, which grain is it amongst all the 
amongst all the grains of sand on the beach, which one is the, the kernel of truth, if you will? Yes. Another book you might want to check out from Aldair, written by Lynn J. Boomviri. I might have butchered that name, sorry. Titles Maldire and Other Witch Tales of Southern Maryland. Traces her back. Ah. I'll have to check that out. Definitely have to check that out. So I'm running out of shelf space. I'm trying to get as much as I can on Kindle as possible. <laughs> <laughs> can you post a photo of the grave? Uh, I can see about looking one up. I have to admit I did not get around to collecting photos for this. No, we did not. But you want to search spots and maybe you could do a little search? Or I can read. Okay, go ahead. All right. All right, so we're going to go to Minnesota this time for uh, the witch's grave known as Versa in Colerain, Minnesota. Now, moving to the country's northern regions, we find the city of Rochester, Minnesota. Not too far from this urban center is Dodge County, where Versa Mary Ignorsol was born in January 26 of 1872. She married Charles Edgar Maynard in, in 1891, and they started a family together. In 1898, the family moved to the homestead on the east side of the Trout Lake near Coltrane, Minnesota. They had seven children, six boys, and one girl. It is said that Bertha wanted a little girl more than anything and finally got her wish with the last child. Her daughter was only a year old when Bertha died at the age of 38 on January 27th of 1910. There's not any records about the cause of her death or any death records of Bertha at all. She was known as a protester and activist for women's rights prior to the movement that finally guaranteed women's suffrage in 1920. According to newspaper articles, Bertha seemed to be highly admired in her time. There was no mention of negativity. There was no hint of unease, just kindness towards a beloved family member's premature passing. So what's going on here? There's nothing that would point to Bertha being accused of witchcraft while she was alive. Books on the history of her community report that the towns are booming and enjoying great success during her lifetime. There's no newspaper article that even hints of accusation towards her. Of course, there's also no one left alive who actually knew Bertha and who could shed some light on the details of her life. But it's also no, worth noting that the era of witchcraft in the United States was long over by the time Bertha was born. So why is Bertha accused of witchcraft? Well, some say that her crops were unusually successful compared to those of her peers. Maybe she went into her garden by moonlight and chanted some songs and conversed with her plants. But another source states that Bertha wasn't accused of witchcraft until shortly after she died. They suspect that any accusations could be traced back to her activist tendencies and the death steps that she was caused while protesting. The powers that be wanted to put a stop to anyone else following in Bertha's footsteps, and that's why the accusations of witchcraft started to fly. There have been many tales of what happened to Bertha's grave after her death. Why is her grave placed at the bottom of a hill near the lake, so far away from the other graves in the cemetery, is a question that is often brought up. In fact, she was buried in a plot that was once part of a church graveyard. Lakeside Cemetery was known as Trout Lake Community Cemetery, until the uh, 1980s. The cemetery belonged to the Trout Lake Norwegian Lutheran Church, which was once located on the same site. While it appears that Bertha would be buried in a grave outside the main cemetery, the truth is her grave is located on the grounds that was once the Trout Lake Norwegian Lutheran Graveyard. And that's why her grave is there and the others uh, near it seem so isolated from the main grounds. The main cemetery that her body was supposedly banned from is in a separate cemetery altogether. The township of Trout Lake has two cemeteries, one on the south end and, of course, um, excuse me. Well, sure. Thank you. Uh, the two cemeteries, the Trout Lake Lakeside and Community Cemetery, were transferred to the township in the mid-80s uh, from, from the religious institutions and basically became one big um, cemetery. Now, adding to this confusion is the fact that the burial records to Trout Lakeside Cemetery were destroyed in a fire in the 80s, and most of the lore about Bertha's grave is based on pure conjecture. Some of the graves were relocated on the grounds of the community cemetery due to flooding from the lake, but Bertha's was not due to a decision by her descendants. The idea that Bertha Maynard was a witch is purely modern invention brought on by the isolation of her gravesite, the restoration of her headstone, and general ignorance of her life. 
of course, our story quite can't quite end there. So there are eyewitnesses who claim to have seen Bertha's ghost haunting the cemetery. Many who were completely unaware of the lore reported hearing leaves rustling near her headstone, followed by the materialization of a strange mist. Some say the mist is white, others say it's like a black cloud. The ghost is said to take on the form of a woman dressed in late 19th century attire before it vanishes and at the boundaries of the community cemetery. Paranormal investigators have also caught a woman's voice on recordings near Bertha's grave. Another piece of lore revolving around Bertha's grave is that the headstone disappears and reappears at different times. Some say it only reappears on the full moon and disappears again in the morning. Others report the headstone reappears every night at midnight before disappearing again. The headstone has been vandalized by local youth, and it was removed at one point by a caretaker to actually stop the vandalism. Once it was returned to her grave, the vandalism continued, and the stone was removed by vandals and then thrown into the lake. It has since been recovered and returned to the burial site again. There are other tales uh, around the site of Bertha's grave. One story finds a young couple uh, studying anatomy while parked in their car near the grave after dark. Out of nowhere, the car went haywire. The radio became fuzzy, the antenna began moving on its own accord, and there wasn't a breath of air to be felt on that night. Others have reported car trouble in the area as well. I will check on it. Yeah, the cats are doing something down there. Just one of them, the other's on the bed. Uh, now. Okay, I just lost my place. <laughs> the cats <laughs> find everybody. <laughs> others have reported car trouble in the area with some going as far to say that Mark. Bertha has made herself heard with some harsh words for those who would seek recreation or recreation near the place where her mortal remains rest. Speaking of which, another story took place in the winter when a young girl and her friend were sledding on the hill near Bertha's grave. While standing at the top of the hill, she made a joke that they'd better not be bad or Bertha would get them. Well, then she was pushed hard from behind by an invisible hand. She was pushed hard enough to stumble into her friend and send him sledding down the hill and into the water. Uh, he was able to pull himself out by the time she ran down to him. She was trying to explain that she had been pushed, when she noticed uh, that he was staring behind her. When she turned around, she realized they were standing on Bertha's grave. They didn't linger in the cemetery long after that. Today, some think the paranormal tales surrounding Bertha Mary Ingalls' store are a complete fabrication, just an urban legend that circulates among the local townsfolk. Others think that Bertha does, in fact, linger by her grave. But if she's still around at her burial site, it wouldn't be too much of a surprise. There are far too many amongst the living who refuse to let her rest in peace. Hi, Trouble. Just causing trouble. She's playing with the cardboard boxes sitting on the hall. Ah, which we left her to play with. Yeah. It just sounded like trouble. I'm sorry. I said, <laughs> you're so false, cute. False accusation. So cute. Go see mommy. Yes. Daddy has to talk about pirate witches. Yes. Pirate. I know that this is one that, whoops. <laughs> I, okay, we don't want to see mommy. I'm not. She okay. looks so innocent. She is a very good actress. Oh, yeah. No, you are not going to be having the letter. <laughs> you're not old enough. But, yes, I know that this was a story that um, our, our good friend Merlin was very much looking forward to, yes. pirate witches. Because pirates and witches all in one. Yes. Now, before we, uh, before we go ahead, before we get too far ahead of ourselves here, um, so uh, we're going to tar- start with talking about Captain Kidd. Now, Captain Kidd's story was well-known because of the treasure he left in various places along the American eastern coastline before he was charged and convicted of murder and piracy. One of his favorite spots for burying treasure was close to Cape Cod, Massachusetts, at a place called Noisy Point, a.k.a. Screecham Island. Captain Kidd was a pirate with resources and connections. One of those connections was a pair of sisters by the name of Hestera and Hannah Screecham that lived on Noisy Point. Today, the site is home to Oyster Harbor's Resort and Golf Club. So if anybody wants to go golfing and you know, a resort club. Kind of place, pinkies out type place. And good ghost hunting while yes. there. <laughs> now, Hannah was a friend of Captain Kidd, and when Kidd needed to bury a, needed a place to bury his treasure quickly, he would reach out to Hannah for help. 
Local legends often refer to Hannah as a witch for various purposes, but her involvement with the pirate sealed her reputation. When Captain Kidd buried his treasure on Screechum Island, Hannah would aid Kidd by killing the crew member who buried the gold. She would push the unsuspecting man into the hole with the treasure and bury him alive. And that's actually a pretty common practice among pirates. Yeah. So if you ever be, get the assignment to go bury the treasure, run. Don't take it. Don't take it. Now, this was done, of course, so that no one aside from Hannah and Kidd knew where the treasure was buried. Legend says the dead men's ghosts guard the buried treasures to this day. There are conflicting accounts on Hannah's actual life and history. One legend says Hannah Screechum would kill the crew member and then screech to let Captain Kidd know that the task is complete. While another legend says Hannah would screech to call Kidd's crew and ship closer to shore. Either way, Hannah had dealings with the pirate Captain Kidd and helped other pirates along the coast as well. The locals called Hannah and Sarah Screechum pirate witches. While Hannah enjoyed the lifestyle of a pirate's associate, Sarah's story is a bit more tragic. Sarah Screechum lived in a cottage on the Mashpee Woods in a, on a pond called Witch Pond. The legend says that Sarah could shapeshift like many other well-known American witches of the era. She had the misfortune of falling in love with a local Mashpee man who deceivingly tied her to a tree while she was in the form of a beautiful black mare. When the man ran off to gather the townsfolk and show off his catch, Sarah managed to escape before the man could lead a mob back to her. He didn't give up, though, as the next day he found Sarah in her cottage with the wounded hand, the same hand that would correspond to the black mayor's hook that he had run through with a silver nail. Sarah's life ended when she shifted into the likeness of a black doe and was shot with a silver bullet by a local hunter. She was later found dead in her cottage with a wound to the head. There are conflicting stories for both Sarah and Hannah Screechum's lives, but we like to think that they were pirate witches in their own right. Some say their screeches can still be heard through the trees and over the sea wind at Oyster Harbors. Some say Hannah guards one of Captain Kidd's treasures, while the ghost of Sarah can be seen in the form of a black doe in the Mashpee Woods. So, the Screechums up there in Massachusetts. Now, not too terribly far away from there, there is another tale where, um, in this case, you know, it's kind of it starts a little cliche. So there are many stories of women gone rogue, which, uh, where, of course, the tale begins with them getting their hearts broken, and it's almost kind of become this you know, whole cliche thing, broken-hearted woman going rogue, and et cetera, et cetera. And this next American witch folk tale follows the formula in a most traditional fashion. In the earliest 18th century, Black Sam was a well-known pirate in the Americas. Originally born in England, he began his career on the high seas as a sailor before graduating as captain. He then turned his attention to making a fortune in a less-than-legal manner. Black Sam and his crew captured over 50 ships and said that he might have been the richest pirate in history. While his line of work might have been frowned upon by the authorities, he also had a reputation for being kind to his captives and crew earning him the title Prince of Pirates. Black Sam spent an extended period cod, and it was during this stay that he met a woman named Maria Haland. Maria, also known as Goody, lived in the nearby town of Wellfleet. The two fell madly in love, and before long, Goody was pregnant. Unfortunately, Sam had gone off on a ship to do what he did best, scourging the waters. There was talk of a huge fortune that had washed up on the coast of Florida, so Sam was on a mission to clean up. He wasn't aware of Goody's condition. When the town discovered Maria Hallett was pregnant out of wedlock, they exiled her. But she knew that Sam would return for her and the baby. She moved close to the shore and watched day in and day out for her soulmate's return. But he never came. Days turned to weeks, weeks to months, and months to years. Sam didn't return, and Maria grew sorrowful and it, uh, grew full of sorrow and despair. Rumors started to swirl about Maria, and she eventually came to be known as the Witch of Wellfleet. The Witch of Wellfleet continued to wait for Black Sam, and one fateful night in 1717, a ship known as the Weda approached the harbor. Black Sam Bellamy had taken the ship and was bringing it home with a sizable treasure. 
Sadly, a storm arose and overturned the ship. Sam and the majority of his crew perished. The bodies washed ashore, and the town buried them. After waiting for so long, Maria Goody Halick, the Witch of Wellfleet, was not in much better shape than her lost love. At least that's how one of the legends goes. Others claim that Maria has actually caused the storm that took Sam's life. There seems to be a pattern amongst women who are associated with pirates. They oftentimes pop up in American witch tales. Perhaps the accusations of witchcraft had something to do with townsfolk seeking revenge on women who were friendly to pirates. On the other hand, it is possible that pirates befriended known witches in hopes that their magical skills would come in handy. Witches were believed to be able to locate lost items, as well as foretell the future to skills that pirates had a lot of use for. Or maybe it's just that all witches were likely to befriend outcasts and rebels, for they too were outcasts and rebels. Exiles have to stick together, after all. Regarding Maria, no one knows if her baby survived. And for that matter, the witch of, uh, witch of Wellcraft's identity of Maria Goody Hallett is also based on speculation. The only documentation to support Maria's possible existence comes from research that confirms that Hallett was a legitimate family name on Cape Cod in the 18th century. That said, it's possible that the entire saga of Maria Goody Hallett and her relationship with Black Sam may actually just be a fairy tale. Kind of just one of those things. You go back that far and the records can get a little sketchy. Yep. Or disappear altogether. Uh, disappear altogether, exactly. Got one more that we're going to share tonight with you. Uh, so this was requested when we mentioned we were doing witches, and that is the Bell Witch Legend. Uh, so we're going to wrap up tonight with this most infamous witch uh, from 1817 to 1821. The family of John Bell lived uh, John Bell of River Red River, Tennessee, experienced an intense series of paranormal activities. Today, the reported activity is best known as the Legend of the Bell Witch. The tale has inspired works of fiction for generations, but unlike those adaptations of the story, this was a very real, and for those who were caught in the middle of the phenomenon, terrifying event. Dr. Nader Porter, a noted lawyer turned parapsychologist, has called The Legend of the Bell Witch America's greatest ghost story, and for good reason. After 200 years, the Bell Witch legend is said to still be making waves. Stories, both fiction and nonfiction, are always being presented anew about the witch itself and whether the tale of the origin was either spiritual or human. It remains an epic, classic American haunted and a whodunit mystery without parallel. And our neighbors are actually related to the Bell Witch, so we thought it was kind of fun to throw this one in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. I forgot that they Yep. So, the Bell family prior to the haunting. In the early 1800s, John Bell moved his family from North Carolina to Red River, bottom land in the Robertson County, Tennessee area. They settled in the Red River community, which later became the present-day Adams, Tennessee. Bell purchased some land and a large house for his family, and over the next several years, he acquired more land, increasing his holdings to 328 acres. He also became an elder of the Red River Baptist Church, and John and his wife Lucy Bell had three more children after moving to Tennessee. They had a very happy and successful early life at their settlement. One day in 1817, John Bell was inspecting his cornfield when he encountered a strange-looking animal sitting in the middle of a corn row. Shocked by the appearance of this animal, which had the body of a dog, the head of a rabbit, Bell shot it several times. The animal vanished, and this was the first documented manifestation of the entity. Bell thought nothing more of the incident, at least not until after dinner. That evening, the family began hearing beating sounds on the outside of their log home. The mysterious sounds continued with increased frequency and force each night. Bell and his sons often hurried outside to catch the culprit, but always returned empty-handed. In the weeks that followed, the Bell children began waking up frightened, complaining that rats were gnawing at their bedposts, and not long after that, the children began to complain of having their bed covers pulled from them and their pillows tossed on the floor by a seemingly invisible creature. As time went on, the Bells began hearing faint whispering voices, which were too weak to understand but sounded like a feeble old woman singing hymns. The encounters escalated and took a particular particular interest to the Bell's youngest daughter, Betsy. 
after she became engaged to a local man named Joshua Gardner. While the families of Betsy and Joshua were very happy for the couple, the same could not be said for the witch. It would pull her hair, it would slap her relentlessly and leaving welts and handprints off her face and body. The disturbances about which John Bell had vowed his family to secret finally escalated to the point that he shared his family trouble with his closest friend and neighbor, James Johnson. Skeptical at first, Johnson and his family and his wife spent the night at cell home. Things began peacefully, but once they retired for the evening, they were subjected to the same terrifying disturbances that the Bells had been experiencing. After their bed covers were yanked off, James was slapped and he sprang out of bed exclaiming, In the name of the Lord, who are you and what do you want? The entity did not respond. The rest of the night was peaceful. The next morning, Mr. Johnson explained to the Bells that the culprit was likely an evil spirit, the kind that the Bible talks about. The entity's voice strengthened over time and became loud and unmistakable. It sang, sang hymns, quoted scripture, and carried on intelligent conversation, and once even quoted word for word two sermons that were preached at the same time on the same day, 13 miles apart. Word of the supernatural phenomenon soon spread outside the settlement, even to Nashville, where then Major General Andrew Jackson became interested in the so-called Bell Witch. Hey. You good? I'm good. Okay. It's a long story. It is a very long story. You will oh, get part oh, of okay. it. Hi, Lulu. That was Lulu. Figured Lulu had to make an appearance. You know it's been on. Now, three of the Bell sons, John Jr., Drury, Drury, and Jesse, had fought under General Jackson in the Battle of New Orleans in 1815. So when Jackson heard of the disturbances facing the Bells in 1819, he decided to pay a visit and investigate. As Jackson's entourage consisted of several men, well-groomed horses, and a large wagon approached the Bell property, the wagon jolted to a sudden stop and had become stuck in a muddy creek bed and the horses were unable to pull it. At least, that's what the men thought. After several minutes of cursing and trying to coax the horses into pulling the wagon, Jackson proclaimed by eternal boys that must be Bellwitch. And suddenly, a disembodied metallic female voice replied, All right, General, let the wagon move on. I will see you again tonight. The entourage was then able to proceed across the property, up the lane, and to the Bell's home. That evening, Jackson was told old war stories while his entourage set up their tents on John and Lucy Bell's yard. One of the men claimed to be a witch tamer. After several uneventful hours, he pulled out a shiny pistol and proclaimed, that its silver bullet would kill any evil spirit that came into contact with it. He went on to say that the reason nothing had happened to them was because whatever was haunting the bells was scared of his silver bullet. Immediately, the man screamed and began jerking his body in different directions, complaining that he was being struck with pins and beaten severely. A strong, swift kick to the man from an invisible foot sent him uh, sent him out on the door, and angrily the entity spoke up and announced that there was yet another fraud in the Jackson party, and that she would identify him in the following evening. Now, terrified, Jackson's men eggs to leave the Bell's farm. Jackson insisted on staying. He wanted to know who the other fraud was. The men eventually went outside to sleep in their tents, but while continuously begging Jackson to leave. What happened next is not clear, but Jackson and his entourage were spotted in nearby Springfield early the next morning, going back to Nashville. Some alleged that Jackson later proclaimed, I would rather fight the British at New Orleans than fight the Bell Witch. The tale of Jackson's encounter with the Bell Witch immediately may be stretched of the truth. The tale of Jackson's visit was only put to paper in a letter some 75 years after the supposed visit took place. Jackson's actual daily movements in the area were also well documented and none of the name mentioned of the Bell homestead. It was also likely that any such encounter between Jackson and the witch, particularly one where Jackson lost, would have been fodder for his opponent in the 1824 presidential election, where again, no mention of any such encounter was made. Still, it is for a fun and classic example of how history and lore can be melded together themselves into fascinating 
had a question. Are there any famous tales of uh, famous warlocks, American warlocks? I know that there are tales of warlocks in other parts of the world, but there's not too many. Not like not like famous ones. Not like the witch tales. No, and you have to be very careful about using the term warlock. A male witch is a witch. A warlock is a male witch that has turned his back on his cousin. So it's a very negative connotation. Yeah. A betrayer. A betrayer. But still, even with that said, there's not too many tales of the warlock. No, there's not. Um, I mean, the most famous one... um, is the uh, the British one, um, Alexander? I'm blanking on his name. I can look. Yeah. I'll see if I can find it. Well, you can carry on though. No, your turn. Oh, my turn. Where am I picking up? Right here, just. Ah, stop. The disturbances continued in frequency and severity into the 1820s, with Betsy and John Bell Sr. continuing to be the main focus of the attacks. John had been experiencing episodes of twitching in his face and difficulty swallowing for almost a year, and the malady grew worse with time. By the fall of 1820, his declining health had confined him to the house, where the malicious entity continuously removed his shoes when he tried to walk and slapped his face when he recovered from his numerous seizures. Her shrill voice was heard all over the farm, cursing and chastising old Jack Bell, the nickname she had given him. John Bell breathed his last breath on the morning of December 20th, 1820, after slipping into a coma a day earlier. Immediately after his death, his family found a vial of strange black liquid in the cupboard. John Jr. sprinkled two drops on the cat's tongue. The cat jumped into the air, rolled over in midair, and was dead when it hit the floor. Why did he test it on the cat? I don't know. I disapproved. I, I thoroughly disapproved. Anyway. The entity then exclaimed, I gave old Jack a big dose of that last night, which fixed him. John Jr. tossed the mysterious vial into the fireplace. It burst into a bright blue flame and shot up the chimney. John Bell's funeral was one of the largest ever held in Robertson County, Tennessee. People attended from miles away, and three preachers, two Methodists and one Baptist, eulogized him. As the crowd of mourners began leaving the graveyard, the bell witch entity laughed and sang a song about a bottle of brandy. Her fervent singing didn't stop until the last mourner had left the graveyard. With John Bell Sr. dead, the entity seems to have fulfilled its main purpose. The activity around the homestead decreased, but it wasn't quite finished with young Betsy. The entity continued to harass Betsy about her engagement to Joshua ordering her time and again not to follow through with a wedding. Betsy and Joshua could not go to the river, the fields, or the cave to play without an entity nagging them. The constant pressure was more than Betsy Bell could handle, and on Easter Monday of 1821, she met Joshua at the river and broke off the engagement. While everyone outwardly seemed disappointed about the failed engagement, there was one man who may have held back his true feelings. Betsy and Joshua's former school teacher, Professor Richard Powell, had been noticeably interested in Betsy for some time and had expressed interest in marrying her when she became older. By some accounts, Powell, who was 11 years Betsy's senior, was a student of the occult, ventriloquism, a mathematical genius, and well-versed in horticulture and geology. While he was secretly married to a woman in nearby Nashville, during the time he lived and taught at Red River and was perceived as a happy-go-lucky bachelor, he expressed his unwavering fondness for Betsy Bell. According to early accounts, Powell politely expressed his disappointment with Betsy's engagement to Joshua and wished her a long and prosperous marriage. Take that for what you will. In April of 1821, shortly after Betsy Bell had broken off her engagement, the entity visited John Bell's widow, Lucy Bell, and told her that it was leaving but would not return in, or but would return in seven years. The entity returned in 1828 as promised. Most of the return visits centered on John Bell Jr., with whom the entity discussed the origins of life, civilization, Christianity, and the need for a major spiritual reawakening. A part- 
particular significance were his predictions of the Civil War and other major events, some of which he did miss. The entity bade farewell after three weeks, promising to visit John Bell's most direct descendant in 107 years. The year would be 1935, and the closest living direct descendant at the time was a Nashville physician, Dr. Charles Bell, a neurologist and John Bell Sr.'s great-grandson. In 1934, Dr. Bell published a book of... Oh, okay. Okay, sorry. In 1934, Dr. Bell published a book about the Bell Witch, likely to raise awareness of the spirit's impending return. The book contained the first-ever account of the alleged... Uh, conferences between the entity and John Bell Jr. in 1828. The author's father had allegedly taken notes during the conferences and upon his death passed them down to his son, Dr. Bell. There was no published follow-up to the 1934 book. Dr. Charles Bell died in 1945 and is buried at Bellwood Cemetery in Adams, Tennessee. Did the Bell Witch return in 1935 as promised? Some say that she did not return, or that if she did, they were not aware of it. But many say she never left the place to begin with. The entity that tormented the Bell family and the Red River settlement almost 200 years ago is often blamed for unexplained manifestations that occur near the old Bell farm today. The faint sounds of people talking and children playing can sometimes be heard in the area, and it's not uncommon to see candlelights dancing through those dark fields late at night. Photography is especially difficult, with some pictures taken in the area showing mist, um, orbs of light, and other phenomena, including human-like figures who were not present when the pictures were taken. Could these phenomena be related to the haunting of John Bell's family? The cause of the Bell's family torment 200 years ago, along with today's continued phenomena in the area, although to a lesser extent, remains a mystery. Numerous theories have been put forth, but all have been debunked. However, most researchers agree that something had to have caused the incident at Red River in the early 1800s that gave rise to the Bell Witch legend as we know it today. Who knows? Happened to the John Bell family in 1817. Maybe next time it could happen to yours. Hold that thought for now and pleasant dreams. Alistair Crowley, yeah. the famous warlock in England. Yeah, uh, occultist. Occultist, excuse me. Um, but claimed to have some magical abilities. Very interesting. That was a fun episode. Yeah. yeah. But that was our last story for this evening, so. Yes, Johnny, Alistair Crowley. Oh, perfect. Yeah, you can go visit the Bell Witch Cave, yep, yep. Uh, which uh, will have to uh, be on our list of places to visit as well, We Patrick. just need to do a huge road trip. Yep. Great in Kirtland, Ohio, of a male witch. Levi is his first name. Hmm. Let's check that out. Yeah, we will. Thanks, Roberta. Hmm, excuse me. Sorry. Uh, bellwitchcave.com. Got a website, yes. of course. <laughs> That's where I went first yep. for my research. And yes, very mean cat killer. I, I, really? Really? John Bell Jr.? Really? Why? <sighs> anyway, Raymond Buckley. Who was Raymond Buckley? Roberta Karch. Raymond Buckley. Have to look it up. We'll have to look it up, yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so good episode. Yeah, that was, that was uh, it, it, it was a fun one, interesting one to into, uh, to research. And of course, there will be more witch stories yeah. further down the line. Yeah, as I said, there's at least two that were part of Salem that I pushed off to next time. I mean, heck, all of those were basically eastern half of the United States. Getting yeah. trust touched the western half, or well, the I mean, we, got, we got the Midwest, but not the Mid- western. Yeah, Midwest, but yeah. And let alone the rest of the globe. Yeah. And it could be interesting to cover witchcraft and how it's perceived in different cultures around the world. Yeah. Could look at that. Yeah. I mean, we've already talked about um, Marie Laveau uh, down in New Orleans with voodoo. Yes, that's right. So. Raymond, Raymond Backlund is what she meant. Okay, Backlund. 
will take a look at that. Um, but next next show, we're going to be doing Haunted Kentucky because it's the end of the month and the Derby usually is the end of the April, beginning of May. So I decided, well, let's do some Haunted Kentucky, and I also found some Haunted Derby stories. Yeah. So that's what we're working on. Raymond Buckland. Got to be. Yeah, probably. Yep. Sort of. Sorry. <laughs> born, born in London. Died in Ohio though, in 2017. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. So he's one of the the newer, the newer Wicked Freaks. Okay. Yes. Yeah, but I was I was gonna, I was going to touch on modern Wiccan practices. That was my whole introduction. That somehow got disappeared. Disappeared. I'll have to, I don't know, might be lost. But either way, keep that in the back pocket for the next time we talk about witches. Yeah. And, I mean, we can bring it up, too, with, uh, if we focus on England. Yep. Or the U.K. So. Well, yeah, we got all kinds of stuff going on. So. And yeah. also next week there will be our next um, show. There will be another major announcement, so definitely tune in for that. We've been hinting at this, and we're finally going to hopefully be able to. Hopefully. Not that get we're getting the last little details together that we can and we can announce it then. Yep. Well, there will be more details, but details, pun details. We'll have enough details to actually share something in detail. Detail, detail. Too enough details too, for one too, night. Too much detail. Too many details. <laughs> but, yeah, so we will go ahead. We will check back with you all. And uh, Wicked stuff can always be used for future episodes. Yep. yep. Oh, yeah. Lots of future episodes to come. So, but we're we're looking forward. Uh, we got the got a good jump start on the script for two weeks from now, and uh, got a whole library of half finished scripts that are starting to mount for yeah, other I gotta, episodes. Yeah, I gotta flesh out those for future episodes. We got we got material for for a year for a long time. <laughs> but yeah, so we will be back in two weeks. And if you want to come on, you know, as I say, every single time, if you ever want to drop us a note or, you know, whatever, drop us a note. We're yep. happy to hear from you, not just during these shows, not just if you manage to come out to one of our tours. We're always happy to chat with uh, chat with you about all the kinds of stuff. So mm-hmm. appreciate you tuning in. Uh, and with that. We will see you next week. Yeah, well, two weeks. Two weeks, sorry. We'll see you in two, two weeks. weeks. Yeah, every other week. So. I'm tired. <laughs> I'll let you go ahead and, and, and get the little button right. tonight. Night, y'all. Good night, everybody. Extra.